We're ready. Get back into the Olivet Discourse. Just a few more photographs, some different ones that we haven't seen before. Same location, same setting, same place. Photograph from the Mount of Olives looking at the present-day wall of Jerusalem. Some of those stones were there when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem. The ones that are at the lower level, I'll show you some of those. So what we're dealing with is real things that happened in real time, and Jesus is dealing with real things that will take place even in the future in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, it is his exposition of how things turn out ultimately, and he knows because he's fully man and also fully God, so he's omniscient. In fact, we closed with that little... uh, aspect of who he is last time. The Temple Mount, looking the other direction, you have the Mount of Olives. Somewhere on there is where the Olivet Discourse was presented by Jesus. Now, in our introduction, does anybody remember how many days before the crucifixion that this took place? The Olivet Discourse, that is? Three. Two. Three. A little more than two. Three. Three. Three days, three nights before crucifixion. That's a beautiful sight. I took this one on, so this is a fresh new photograph, only a few days old, a few couple of weeks old. And for some reason, I almost had all of Jerusalem to myself, except for that one guy there. (laughs) It was seemingly unusual to me that there were so few people there, but this was a Bad years, what the lady told me, Lindy. Temple Mount, so this is what they were looking at as Jesus uses their question concerning these beautiful buildings, not not these particularly, but the ones that were there in the first century. And he said they will be destroyed, and that happened a few years later in 70 A.D., the reason for that is because he would go, he would be rejected essentially as king. He presented the kingdom, but was rejected, and what follows is judgment. And the kingdom is delayed. We're not living in the kingdom now. The kingdom is yet future, the kingdom that Israel anticipated. So this is kind of the setting of the book. And I showed you that photograph. No one on the path, interestingly. In fact, no one was there the whole time I was there. You weren't nervous about that? (laughs) (laughs) They were there. Things don't make me nervous, I guess. Nope. This is kind of looking in the other direction. This is the same path, looking in the other direction. That's the pinnacle of the temple, or what would have been in the first century. Remember, the devil took him to the pinnacle showed him all of the kingdoms and said, they're yours if you just bow down to me. Jesus refused, obviously, because ultimately all of the kingdoms would be his in his timing, not in Satan's. Now, those lower stones, those are Herodian stones. In other words, those were there in the first century. By Herodian, we mean that Herod the Great is the one that built the retaining walls for Temple Mount, and then some of those stones were overturned during the 70 A.D. destruction of the temple and the city, and then later on other stones were put up above. 
And they're made out of what? Those of you that are going to Israel? Limestone, which is very common all over that area. Another photograph, the lower stones again, the big ones. And you can tell Herodian stones, they have a characteristic border. Uh, you can't quite make it out, but uh, there's a border on that stone that's quite distinct. And What's the border made of? It's just a cut on the limestone. Okay. Yeah. The, fa the, the facing. Cut yeah. In the face. Right. You can see it right there as well. It's a little bit eroded there. But that's characteristic Herodian. In other words, that would date it to that time frame. The photograph is about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away from the wall there from the corner. We'll walk that to those that go on the trip. So that's a little bit of the setting, the background where all of this took place. We spent a lot of time looking at a very particular period of time. Now, when you think of eschatology, this is key. In fact, I stress this to the course that I taught in Kiev. Eschatology is Jewish, primarily Jewish eschatology. We have a time frame, we have a chronology, we have a sequence of events that are clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. And they're given to us in some detail in the Old Testament. So eschatology is predominantly Jewish. Now, because we're all self-centered, we think everything's about the church. Well, that's not the case. The church simply fits in to Jewish eschatology. One of the main emphases of the future for Israel is this period of tribulation. It has nothing to do with the church. That is why the church is not a part of it. And there's a lot of other reasons as well. But that is one of the reasons is the church does not go through that period of time because it's Jewish. It's a period of time that is prophesied in many, many Old Testament prophets and prophecies. And it has a particular purpose. God is bringing judgment upon the earth. And he's going to use those judgments. That's the primary purpose of that period of time. The, and the main reason and the main purpose is that through those judgments, the nation of Israel will be awakened. And this will bring them into a saving relationship with himself. And here is where the new covenant will ultimately be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. And that's the primary reason for that tribulation period. So Jesus deals with that, and in dealing with that, that brings to the forefront all those Old Testament passages that we looked at, particularly the time frame. The clock begins to tick on Israel's history when a covenant is signed, and then there's a particular period of time, seven years 1260 times two, because <laughs> there's two three and a half periods, and not one day less, not one day more. So it's clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. Not only is it given chronologically, but also its purpose. So we spend a lot of time on that, because most of the book of Revelation deals with that seven-year period of time. In fact, from chapters 6 through chapter part of 19, actually. Because Jesus ends that period when he returns. So we describe that coming in verse 29 through 31. Very brief, but one of the most descriptive passages concerning his coming in all of the scriptures, perhaps except for Revelation 19. Jesus gives a spectacular display of what it will be like when he returns. 
And then, that's probably what we could consider the end of the doctrinal portion of the Olivet Discourse. Now, what Jesus does, he does what's very similar in many of the letters as well. For example, the classic book, Ephesians, breaks down into two halves. First half is predominantly doctrinal, chapters 1 through 3, where he lays out doctrines relating to the church, relating to salvation, relating to believers. And then, beginning in chapter 4, therefore, now how do we live in light of that doctrine? This is typical. First Peter does it, the book of Romans does it, to some extent some of the other letters do it. So also you see that same characteristic with the Olivet Discourse. So I would see verses 4 through 31 as the doctrinal portion, the teaching portion, the historical portion in the future of the Olivet Discourse. And then beginning in verse 32, we have the applicational portion. Does that make sense? The applicational portion. In other words, how should we now respond in light of these events that have been described that are yet future? We should, in fact, that's the whole purpose for eschatology. It's not to satisfy our curiosity. It's not to just give us insight into what's going to happen in the future. But in every case, and includes the Olivet Discourse, God gives us the, the reason that he's giving us the details so we can have a proper response, a proper attitude or a proper way of uh, responding to what has just been taught. So beginning in verse 32, we have an applicational portion. You could even extend that because it's somewhat applicational all the way through chapter 25, but particularly verse 32 through 51 of, of 24. And when we get to 25, we'll talk about that. So, applications for the Olivet Discourse. That's where we're at, and we're looking at six illustrations, some in the form of parables. We have the, we looked at the parable of the fig tree last time. We're going to pick up now. We're going to look at the illustration from Noah's day, and these are applicational. In other words, how should we respond to the details concerning the second coming? So, the illustration of Noah's Day, 37 to 39, I intend to get through that today. I also intend to get through the second illustration of labors, verses 40 through 42. You might say very ambitious, right? From 37 to 42, lots of verses. Very ambitious. Well, we'll see. <laughs> All right, then there's the parable. Yep. Now, on your outline, I include the parable of the traveler. I've kind of divided this into... Two parts, what we have remaining. For, uh, that one is in Mark. Mark's Gospel, Mark's account of the same sermon, or the same teaching, the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13 deals with the Olivet Discourse in Mark's Gospel. And in verses 33 through 37, we have a little short applicational portion where he gives a different parable. He includes the parable of the fig tree, and then he moves into this parable. Parable of the Traveler. And then there's a, later on, we won't get this far, parable of the homeowner. Hopefully next week we'll get to that. Back to Matthew 24, 43 through 44. And then there's a sixth illustration in the form of a parable, the parable of the servants. And each one of these gives us some aspect of application. In other words, one way that we respond. 
In some cases, it's to have a proper attitude or a proper perspective or proper outlook. And in other cases, it's actually things to do. In other words, things that we need to be doing. That's the application portion. So, just to kind of pick up where we left off last time and highlight one of the last verses there relating to the parable of the fig tree, verse 36, but of that day, he already talked about the nearness of it. When you see the budding of the fig tree and the softening of the branches and the leaves, then any little kid will know, hmm, it's almost time to get out of school. Summer is on on its way. We're very close to summer. So it's a, just a simple illustration, parable of the fig tree. Remember I gave you some, I think, interpretations of it that I don't think are intended by, by Jesus in this case. I think it's just a simple illustration that any young person or old person even can figure out. So, it deals with the, the final generation before the second coming, essentially. And concerning that, of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, I, because we were at the end of our hour, I went over that rather quickly. But this is the key passage in terms of a particular approach to eschatology that we are warned against. And yet the tendency still persists today. People have a tendency of trying to set a date or a time frame. And Jesus is emphasizing, don't do that. So that's one way of applying what we have here. Don't set dates. If people set dates, then immediately they're going against what Jesus says. In fact, they're elevating themselves even above Jesus because Jesus says no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. So if anyone thinks that they could figure it out, and some have done or attempted to do that, like in 1988, there was that booklet, 88 Reasons Why the Lord Comes in 1988. Well, he didn't. And then after that was discredited, he says, oh, I missed it by a year. 89 reason. I found another one. 89 reasons why he's coming in 89. Well, he didn't come in 89. <laughs> no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. God has not made it known. It's on a time frame. It's on God's timetable. But he has not revealed it. Make sense? Anywhere in scripture. This is the key passage against that. Not even the Son. In other words, Jesus himself in his humanity on earth was limited in his omniscience. He didn't lose omniscience, but he set it aside as Philippians 2 tells us. Remember the passage? That's the emptying of himself, of access to the full attributes of deity. He didn't lose those attributes, including omniscience, but he limited himself to only access them as God made them available and within the will of God. So when it was appropriate to display omnipotence, Jesus did that by stilling a storm, or by reading minds omnisciently, or by performing healings only within the will of God. Not everybody was healed. Not every occasion did Jesus display that. It was only on certain periods when it was appropriate in the timing and in the will of God. So also with omniscience. It's not that he lost omniscience. 
not that he lost information, it was that on certain occasions uh, he was limited like you and I are. That's part of the whole incarnation, the whole issue of fully human aspect of who Jesus is. So even Jesus was limited in terms of the specific time frame. Only the Father. Does that make sense? So this is a very important verse to keep in mind. So beware, people even today attempt to say, well, because of these things, we can expect the Lord to come within a certain time frame. Not so. Be careful. We should have an attitude that he could come at any moment, but not to the extent that we can begin to set time frames. That's the perspective that we are to have. So the one of the applications or one of the practices that we can adopt here is we need to live a life every day with a second coming urgency. In other words, if you were granted to know that the Lord were to come today, how would you rearrange your day? Well, live your life, your whole life in that manner with a sense of urgency. In other words, I've got to accomplish everything that God wants me to accomplish in this day. I have to have the attitude that he could come, and I need to be walking with him, I need to be in fellowship with him, I need to be obedient with him. That's what it means to live a sense of urgency. In other words, I'm not putting things off that he wants me to do. I'm not thinking, well, I can do whatever I want to. I should have a certain perspective. And that perspective is one of intimate relationship with him moment by moment, accomplishing everything that he wants me to do at every moment that he has given me every breath. So that's one way of applying that first one. So this leads us into what we're going to look at the next part of the application, the illustration of Noah's day. Now, in some ways, this kind of goes along with the parable of the fig tree. It's kind of an extension of it, but I kind of separated it out and because it's a separate illustration, so let's look at it not so much independently, but kind of sequentially following the parable of the fig tree. Kind of a different illustration from the one that we looked at last time. So it's an illustration of Noah's day. We have the comparison in verse 37. First of all, this is on your outline sheet. 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like, what's that? Comparison here. So he's going to give us a comparison with another time frame. The coming of the Son of Man, that's what he's dealing with. In fact, that's the whole central concept or idea of the Olivet Discourse the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That coming that is associated with all of these signs that precede it, that we looked at, verses 4 through 28, on that occasion when he actually comes, that generation that he has just described with the parable of the fig tree, it's going to have certain characteristics or it's going to display certain conditions. It's going to be just like the days of Noah. So you can go back to the book of Genesis, look up Genesis 6 through 9, and we have the time frame of Noah. What was it like? Well, there's several things that we can talk about, and it's a very familiar story. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But you know that Noah primarily was building an ark, and he spent over a 100 years, in fact, 
He it speaks of him being a preacher for 120 years. So he's building an ark day by day, day by day, just timber by timber, spike by spike, building according to the plan that God revealed, that plan we have in Genesis chapter 6. So he's building this structure. He's an ark builder. He's also a preacher. So not only is he building something that people can visually see, and it's huge. It's 400, what is it, 450 feet long. It's over a football field in length. Several stories tall. What is it, 45 feet wide, I believe, if I get the dimensions right by memory here. So this is a huge ship. In fact, nothing had been built that size in all of world history until about the 1800s, particularly in the shipbuilding industry. So this is huge. People could not miss it, in other words. In other words, what's that stupid guy doing building a boat when there's never been a flood? In fact, there's never been rain, probably, if you understand some of the passages preceding pre-flood conditions. What's he doing? I mean, seems like a useless use of material. He's destroying the environment. <laughs> he is destroying our view of things. So Noah is an ark builder. That in itself is a testimony. That in itself is speaking loudly to that generation. It's calling attention to the message that he's preaching. And what he's preaching is that there is coming judgment because man is a sinner. Because man has violated the standards of God Mankind stands in judgment. This built, this structure I'm building is the only way to escape. There's always just one way of salvation. It's not through the church. It's not through good works. It's only through Jesus Christ and Him alone. The ark is a picture of that. There was only one way of escape in that generation. It's to believe the message that Noah was preaching Believing such that you get on the ark with him. That generation was oblivious to it, made fun of Noah, rejected him, and went on. In fact, the next passage is going to explain some of those conditions. So we have a comparison, verse 37, to the days of Noah, and now he's going to describe the conditions, verse 38. For as in those days before the flood... And, by the way, you can probably guess, what is the word for flood here? Because it's unique to the New Testament. There's a unique word that's used for the Genesis flood. No, that's just another English word. I'm thinking of the Greek word here, where we get a word. Anyone remember? No. Cataclysm, where we get the word cataclysm. Greek word, kataklusmas. It's used uniquely of the Genesis flood. There's other words in the Greek language that refer to floods or moving water or rushing, gushing water. But whenever kataklusmas is used, it's used of the Genesis flood. In those days before the cataclysm, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Is it bad to eat? We do it every day. Hopefully, unless you're fasting, sometimes more than once, right? Some of you eat more than once. <laughs> Drinking, I don't think alcohol is necessarily in view here. I think just we need fluids, we need water, we need juice. 
Is there something wrong with doing that? No. Is it wrong to get married? No, that's a joyous time. In fact, very fulfilling time for any individual that is going through that process. And you as parents, giving in marriage, in other words, doing all the preparations that are needed to get your children off into a marriage situation. Anything wrong with any of those things? He's not highlighting the evil, the rejection, the sin that Genesis 6 does describes because he's talking about a particular attitude, a particular way of life that's going to be very similar at the time of the second coming. Now, there is going to be all that evil as well, but that's not the comparison he's making. Did you have a, somebody, Jenny? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's without living in that sense of urgency that we just talked about. In fact, what it is, it's a worldly attitude. In other words, as the world just continues, just like it did in Noah's day, everybody just continued doing what they always did. They had a worldly attitude. They had an indifferent attitude to the Word of God. They were indifferent. The stress is not so much that they were off into all these evil things. Now, that was the case in Noah's day as well. But what he is stressing here is just the indifferent attitude. The same attitude that is prevalent in the culture in which we live in. People are not interested in the Word of God. People are not interested in studying the Scriptures, the revelation that God has given. They're not interested in spiritual things. They're more interested in what they're going to do this weekend, or where they're going to go, or how much money they're going to make this week, and those sort of things. They're preoccupied with all these other things. And I think it works itself down to wrong priorities. And I think that's the main stress in this passage. That's the applicational aspect that I think he's bringing out. The attitude, it, it, you can do all good things, but if you have the wrong attitude towards them and you don't have a proper fellowship attitude or condition, then it doesn't matter how good they are. Marriage is one of the greatest things that people can enter into. Preparing to get your young people married off, that's a joyous, great time. But without the proper attitude, without the proper fellowship, then uh, it's just like going out and doing all those evil things as well. Because your priorities are all out of order. And that's the whole point there. So all these things are going on until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, totally oblivious to the coming judgment. They had over a hundred years to soak in this message and to be prepared and to get priorities in order, their priorities remain out of order until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then what happened? Well, we have the comparison, verse 37. We have the conditions, the conditions of priorities out of order, overemphasis on worldly things, a neglect or an indifference to spiritual things, and then, verse 39, we have the catastrophe, the cataclysmas. Verse 39, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, until the cataclysm came. And then it's too late. The time to get your life in order is too late. And that's the case in every generation. And for some, it's on the deathbed, it's, it's too late. 
there's only a certain amount of grace available until God just shuts the door on a generation or on an individual. So they did not understand until the flood. They didn't understand because they didn't take the time to avail themselves of the preaching of Noah or the revelation that God was giving. And people today don't take the time to study the Word, to understand it, and to have that daily opportunity with fellowship with the Lord and concentrated effort on studying what God has revealed. I ran some numbers uh, on the flood at one time. Uh, there's when you tell it did not rain prior to the flood. And when this started, the average rate of rise of water was six feet an hour. Six feet an hour, okay, yeah. Yeah, this is a cataclysmus. Pretty significant rain. Yeah, very significant. That's based on the data that you have in the text, right? Right from the text. Yep. Okay, so they did not understand. So this is huge. And if you've heard my little scientific evidence for a universal flood, it goes along with what Bill is talking about right there. In terms of this is universal flood, worldwide cataclysm, of which there's overwhelming scientific evidence. So if you want some of that data, you can get it from the website. All right. I think it's something to think about is that one difference is that there was only one category of humanity, but there's two categories now. Can you explain? You have, you have the indwell, born-again category. Okay. You have that. But you did have believers. You had the equivalent of what today would be spirit indwelt, even though it doesn't mention Noah as being one of them, but they had a relationship with God in some sense, in an Old Testament sense. So you still had two categories. Not the same categories as what we have today is the point you're making. Yeah. Okay. So they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Now keep that in mind, because in the context that he's dealing with, I think that little phrase is, in fact, going to influence how we take the next illustration. He's talking about a flood that sweeps people away in judgment. Keep that in mind. Keep that context in mind. So we have Noah, the ark builder, the preacher. Everybody's accountable. They've heard a message. They've seen what God is going to do visually with the ark. They have maintained a worldly attitude. So what? I mean, so what? He's making this stupid structure. I'm going to continue with what I am more interested in. I'm going to maintain my priorities, not biblical priorities, not what God has set forth, which is a relationship, ongoing walk with him, and they're taken in judgment as a result. I think that's the essence of the comparison that he's making here. So, at the end of verse 39, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, there's the comparison. It's going to be similar to the time frame of Noah. People are going to be indifferent to God's word. They're going to have the worldly attitude. Sunday is for sports. Sunday is for sailing my boat. Sunday is for whatever, working in the garden. Sunday is all of these other things. Monday is related to Sunday. Tuesday is related to Monday. All of these things work together in whatever I desire to accomplish. Wrong priorities. Rather than moment by moment, Lord, what do you have for me today? It may vary from what I have planned. It may be different. 
What are your priorities? Is the point, David? The way to look at it is that Noah was the one that was preparing. Yes. Day by day, he was preparing for what God had revealed in God's revelation to Noah, which would have been communicated. Family that were saved. Only eight. Us. Only Only eight. So there is a relation. Yes. I was just thinking along those lines, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, yes, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Very good. There's the New Testament commentary on the life of Noah. Very good. Hebrews chapter eleven. So will the coming of the Son of Man be? In other words. That same generation preceding the second coming is going to have the same attitude. Indifferent, worldly, wrong priorities. So the correspondence here, the correspondence between what is being illustrated and what it represents. The fig tree probably represents this last generation before the second coming. Secondly, the correspondence between what it was like in Noah's day, dealing with conditions... Priority conditions. Dealing with priorities. I think that's the essence of what we have here. The essence of the parable, signs of the second coming should motivate us to maintain biblical priorities. Our priorities should be biblical priorities. And you search the scriptures to find that out. In other words, what should be my priority in terms of my walk with the Lord? I should remain in fellowship day by day, moment by moment. I should be in his word consistently. Maybe not every single day, but consistently. That's the whole idea here. We don't want to make it legalistic. I should be in prayer. I should have a time of walking and fellowshipping with the Lord. That's a priority vertical. I should have a priority in terms of my family. I should be a provider. I should be one that nurtures I should have spiritual priorities in terms of my family. I should be one that encourages them to walk with the Lord. That's part of my priorities. I have a priority in terms of one another in the body of Christ, encouraging one another, exercising your spiritual gift. These are the priorities that you maintain. In terms of the world, I should have an attitude of sharing Christ with a lost world, with unbelievers. These are the major priorities that we should have. And they should take precedence over all of the ideas that we have, all of the goals that we may have in terms of career and success and finances, etc. After we've maintained our priorities, now we're free to do all the other things that we so desire. Now, you're saying that this generation is the tribulation yes. generation, right? So, um, yeah, remember what I said last week. Uh, it just, it's so hard for me to think about them living their life the way we're describing it here when you have a huge part of the world taken from, people taken from the earth, first of all, just a few years before. Yes. And then you had all these tremendous catastrophes that have already taken place. Uh, it's just hard to imagine that they're just living their life. Yeah. You, know, you need to focus on... A biblical doctrine that starts with a D. What is that biblical doctrine? And it makes perfect sense. Depravity. Have ever, anyone heard of depravity? Yeah. 
Blind, in other words, the unbeliever is blinded, no matter how clear it may be, no matter how blatant everything around us may seem to be, we, the human heart, the unbelieving human heart is depraved in such a way that it makes perfect sense. Okay, good point though. So, I'm leading into the application we can draw. I think this is the application for that generation, that last generation. It would have been the same application for the disciples in the first century. And then we can draw an application as well. And that application is keep priorities in order. And I just kind of laid them out briefly. Our priority in terms of our relationship to God, our priority in terms of the family that God has put us in, our priorities in terms of one another in the body of Christ, our priority in terms of our relationship with the unbeliever. And then after that, now I can go out and make some money. And, and that issue with the unbeliever is the great important. Yes. Jesus said no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. So I think it's so important for for us as the body of Christ to always be praying for unbelievers. Yes. Building relationships, taking advantage of opportunities to overtly share the gospel, but at least building those arcs where people can see your life. Most of all, praying for them. Right. Praying for them. Very huge. Okay? So that's the illustration of Noah's day. And let's take a look at this other illustration dealing with two labors that comes right out of Noah's day, verse 40 through 42. So we have illustration of labors. First of all, we have the labors in the field. Now he's dealing with everyday situations. In other words, all conditions... And you could insert whatever here. What's your career? You could insert laborers uh, at the engineering office or whatever, or if you're into education, laborers teaching in a school, you know, whatever your situation, put yourself into the passage here. Laborers in the field, then there will be two. In that culture, it was agricultural, so most people in some way had something to do with the agriculture. That's why he uses the illustration. They were, some of them were slaves, some of them were slave owners, some of them were plantation owners, etc. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. So notice one taken, one left. Now, this introduces a question. What, what is he describing here? Put it in the context, as always. Every passage needs to be interpreted within the context. What has he just been talking about? He's just been talking about Noah and a whole generation being taken away. Now he's talking about here, one in the field, and one in, you know, one of them is taken away and one is left. In terms of Noah and his family, Noah and his family were left on the ark, and they were the ones that began a new generation after. Keep the context in mind. This follows immediately after this. So, I think with that little clue, it's going to help us to understand and reject a very common interpretation of this. Many people see this as a rapture passage. It's within a context of eschatology, but where's our tendency? Oh, everything has to do with us, our selfish attitude. So it must deal with the rapture because that deals with us. Well, it's out of the sequence here. Jesus is not talking about the rapture. In fact, the rapture has not even been revealed yet. So Jesus is not going to reveal it in an illustration. 
Does Jesus reveal the rapture? Let me ask you that question. Yes. Flip a coin. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Dennis, okay. He's he's kind of he's pretty safe there. No, yes. How about Upper Room Discourse, which is the night before his crucifixion? I think he does give some at least hints. In uh, John 14, 1 through 3, I go away, prepare a place for you, and I will return and take you with me. Yes. I think that is the first revelation concerning a what we would know later on from 1 Thessalonians 4 as a rapture. Would that, but if we're talking to Jewish people, would that apply to them, or would that apply to his second coming? Well, I think he's dealing with the disciples, and I see it's only the upper room discourse where Jesus is now preparing them for a church age ministry. Okay? Yeah, because remember the emphasis, one of the main things that he's talking about, I'm going to send the Spirit, and when the Spirit comes, you're going to understand all these things, He's preparing them. In fact, in the Upper Room Discourse, we have more church-age principles given than all of everything he's talked about before. Everything else is Jewish. But the Upper Room Discourse, the last message of Jesus, prepares them for their future ministry after he is gone. After crucifixion, death, burial, and even ascension. Now they're going to have this ministry. And he's going to leave but he's going to come back and take them with him. So I think this is the first hint of a rapture. So we don't have it in the Olivet Discourse. He's dealing with Jewish eschatology. All right? So the one that is taken is what? He's taken in judgment like that generation of Noah. The one that is left is the one that will live through that period of time, and if they survive the seven years, they will be the ones that, in fact, begin to build that new era that we call kingdom. Make sense? Similarly, we have labor's milling. We don't want to whip women out. Jesus was a big supporter of women. So he deals with the men in verse 40. In verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. Now this is a a little uh, millstone that was common within the home. There's a particular word there. I don't remember... The Greek word specifically starts with a M. Two women are grinding. What they're doing is they're preparing grain to be used for bread, which is very common. In other words, the men would uh, gather the harvest and bring the grain, and the women would grind it and make flour out of it, and then they'd make bread. So two women are just doing everyday things, just like that generation of Noah, just carrying on with their lives. Some are prepared, some are not. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Again, one will be taken, one will be left. Very similar. So he gives two illustrations, one for men that work out in the fields, one for women that work inside dealing with the everyday issues of feeding families, etc. Jeremy? Is 50%, is that... uh indicative of anything? Is it just, you know... I don't know. It's an illustration... Yeah, don't make it walk on all fours. So, yeah, not. Yeah, he doesn't say half of them. He says one will, one won't. 
In other words, this is just typical. You can just expect in some cases, some will be prepared. In other cases, others will be oblivious. And the ones that are oblivious are taken. So the taking away, there are three different views. One is the rapture. I reject that view. There's a lot of reasons. Another view is similar, but the commentator I read on that one just said they're rescued without any specific reference to the rapture necessarily. Uh, The ones that were taken are rescued. I think it's better the ones that are taken are taken in judgment, just like the generation that's taken by the flood in judgment. And it's sudden, unexpected. In other words, just going on with life and all of a sudden, boom, they're taken away, swept away. So are you saying the ones that are left are like the kingdom? Yes. They're the ones that are believers. They're the ones that are prepared. They're the ones that will, in fact, if they survive the seven years, will populate the kingdom. So in the context, he's not talking about the rapture here. He's talking about what he's been talking about before with Noah and that generation. And the total broader context in terms of the overall context of the Olivet Discourse. Several reasons. We have the context of Noah that I just gave you that supports this interpretation. Secondly, just the overall context of the Olivet Discourse doesn't deal with the church at all. I've been stressing that throughout. It deals with that seven-year Jewish last week of Daniel chapter 9. It's Jewish, Jewish eschatology. So now, all of a sudden, he's not interjecting eschatology as it relates to the church, how the church fits into Jewish eschatology. He's not doing that. That would be out of context. Thirdly, we have parallel passages that seem to strengthen this idea. We have Little details in other places that give us more data. For the sake of time, I won't give you those. It fits this pre-tribulation chronology. The post-tribulationists use this passage and say, there's the rapture after the seven-year period of time. It's got to be post-tribulation. Well, it's not the rapture at all. It fits within a pre-trib chronology But within the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is not dealing with the church at all. And if you want a fifth one, it fits an Old Testament image of being swept away. And a lot of judgments are pictured as, in this way, a sweeping away, a destruction. And I can give you some uh, other passages related to that as well. And the passage concludes with a caution. Here's the application to draw from it. He gave illustrations. In fact, this could cap all three, the parable of the fig tree, the illustration of Noah's day, the illustration of the labors. We have verse 42. Therefore, okay, here it is, be on the alert. In other words, be aware of eschatology Be aware of the culture in which you live in. Be aware that there's probably an interplay between the two. Be on the alert. Don't be caught off guard. So what if there's a 9-11? That doesn't mean that everything is falling apart and God is not no longer sovereign. God is still sovereign. In fact, we've lived several years after 9-11, but we should have the same attitude of alertness weighing all things based on what Scripture teaches, be on the alert. <clears throat> For you do not know the day or the hour. There's several words. I'm going to 
skip over this. We'll come back and start here next time. Several words for alertness that occur in eschatological passages. So this is a stress when it comes to studying eschatology. It's emphasizing the attitude of alertness. Lepo is one of them. Sleepless, don't, don't be asleep, alertness. So, concluding here, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. In other words, don't set dates, you have no idea. Maintain your priorities, maintain your godly attitude, and stay alert. Stay alert. Take in the news, but weigh it based on what God reveals in his word, based on his eschatological plan. Linda. He's speaking to the disciples, first and foremost, but he, as we've been stressing, the you is a kind of a prophetic you that speaks beyond those, because the, the uh, details that he's describing go way beyond that first century. So it's not just the it's the first century believers, it's the generation that sees these signs, and then in a tertiary application, it applies, because it's inspired, it applies to you and I. We have the correspondence, the labors, indicates suddenness of the judgment, the unexpectedness of the judgment. And the essence of it, second coming, will bring unexpected and swift judgment, so be alert. Be alert concerning the signs of the times. Probably a main application we can draw is we get a tendency to get so wrapped up in the everyday things that we sometimes fail to maintain our priorities. Who wants to close for us? Connie. Uh, Amen.